Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Arate. This time we're going to be talking about the map is not the territory. I'm here with uh, Jason Brooks again. Hello, Jason. How are you? Hello. I so, am awesome. Awesome. We talked the last time Jason asked me, so have you thought a little bit more about the intro? And I'm like, yeah, no fucking intro. So that's where we're at. Here's our intro. <laughs> <laughs> they could do with it what they want to, right? Probably nothing. Yeah. An intro of us giggling. Yeah, one of the one things that we have um, <laughs> we've committed not to doing is spending um, the first ten minutes talking about our day to day life and all the things that have happened in our day to day life, so that everyone has to fast forward for the first ten minutes. There's a few podcasts out there that I listen to that I think are wonderful, but they the two hosts it's like they live in different cities and so they need to catch up on every on everything. And I'm like, I just cannot. Like Jason, your life is your life, my life is my life, and it should bleed into the conversation naturally. Yeah. Not be some stock intro that we utilize to get started with things. So um, what we thought we would do, though, is kind of review a little bit before we get into our main topic is review a little bit. We, Jason and I both had some thoughts about our topic last week, which was the view. Um, and Jason, do you want to get started with that? Give us a little bit of a of a of so where your reflections have kind of been. And then I can do some of mine and then we'll launch into our main topic. Yeah, you know, um, this podcast ostensibly is is practical and pragmatic, right? We're not just talking and pontificating on uh, either meaningful or insignificant questions about the world and the nature of humanity, but we're also trying <laughs> to apply these ideas, concepts, mental models to our everyday life. So, um you know, I had, I had two main reflections. One, um, I have a tendency sometimes to be a little hyperbolic and, um, in particular, I can go off the rails about my childhood experience. There's a lot of like emotion and trauma that's unprocessed there. And, uh, sometimes I get a little worked up <laughs> when I'm reflecting on my experience and, um, you know, part of my worldview, as we talked about last week, is shaped um, by my upbringing. It is for everybody, right? Like we're, um, we're taught a lot about the world from our social upbringing, from our family and everything. And, and while I, I said something to the tune of nobody should, should have to grow up in the household that I grew up in, I feel like that was a, a relatively un, unfair statement. There was, I, I mm. painted a very negative picture when there was plenty of, of positive also. And one of the positive things that shaped my worldview from my upbringing was my mom really taught me the value of owning up to my uh, actions, taking mm. responsibility for the things that I do. It's actually, that is at the top of my uh, core values list, personal responsibility. I feel like mm. everything flows from personal responsibility. And, um, you know, that's, that's something my mom taught me. And um, so I have to take personal responsibility here for, for going a little off the rails. And, and uh, you know, I've reflected that if my mom was and to that podcast episode, she'd probably get her feelings hurt by the way I talked about uh, that circumstance. And so here's my, here's my public, you know, apology, not necessarily walking it back. Cause um, you know, I am, I am who I am in large part because of those experiences. Uh, but I can also sit here 
and eat crow and um, take responsibility. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. You know, as far, you know, the biggest thing I reflected on the view is it's difficult to like, not necessarily pigeonhole oneself into what their view is, but to come up with a succinct way to say, like, here's my worldview. Um, there are so many entry points into it, and it's such a multifaceted kind of thing. I really reflected on everything I left on the table and um, talking about the worldview. <laughs> and um, I, I'm not sure, you know, I thought, early on about a lot of things that I maybe don't even agree with anymore now that I've had to say them and put them out in, into the world, you know, give them a life of their own. These ideas no longer just bouncing around in my head. Um, so I thought, you know, that was a really, um, it was a useful exercise. And I think that's what the point of this podcast is, this project that we're working on really is to like, flesh out these ideas, put them out there, let them take on a life of their own, evolve a little bit. And um, hopefully, in particular, challenge a lot of the ideas by by putting them into a community in a public sphere where hopefully people will, you know, either push back on us um, mm -hmm. or enlighten us through their own practice of going through this. And so um, I guess that was my my primary reflection. Yeah. My reflection was I also was a little harsh to a community group that I was that I referenced in the last episode with my elite athletes, and I said they were all full of shit, which anybody who's listened to me over the years knows that I have a tendency to say my athletes are full of shit. And I walked it back <laughs> a little bit during that. Um, and so I just want to clarify, I don't really feel like any single person that I was working with at that time was particularly... Uh, full of anything they were just working their way through life um at the age of coming out of college and you know sort of moving from you know they'd already done the transition from you know their their home life into a more public self-discovery mode that we all have when we go to college if we go to college in the traditional way like right after our high school years and then from there they then launched again where they had protections especially as a collegiate athlete they have a lot of resources taken care of, things monitored for them and managed for them in a way that maybe the general student body doesn't. I mean, then they get to they get into a post collegiate program, and they're now forced to reflect on uh, life. And many of them weren't reflecting on life; they were just trying to survive to get to the next step. And that was what I was criticizing. But it is unreasonable and was unreasonable for me to make that criticism. But I was just highlighting the fact that that's something that we all frequently do. And um, we, you know, here I am at the age of 52 and I'm able to reflect and I'm still working out what I mean by a worldview. So to be honest and charitable and at least to recognize that that I did think I did think that they could use a lot of reflection that would be have been beneficial. And I tried to help provide that. Um, but going back to this idea that athletes are full of shit. It is my ongoing experience as a coach that the blind, the significantly, the most, the most, the largest and most challenging blind spot an athlete has when they're working with a coach is they've offloaded the responsibility of a significant portion of the things that happen between the time the gun goes off until they finish across a finish line, regardless of their event. They offload that to a coach. And I, 
my saying an athlete is full of shit means that they're not really recognizing that. And so they are thinking that they have something they don't have because they've pushed it off to their coach. And this is, this is a consistent thing. And I talk to my athletes about it. So I'm pretty sure that any of my athletes that are listening to this will say, yeah, I've had conversations with Steve about this, or I know my coach feels this way. Right. So hopefully if anybody thinks that I'm being uncharitable or cruel, then I would love to hear from you. Um, you can, you can reach out to me and Jason at Sisson at runnosis.com. You can reach us there with anything that we cover or talk about. And in terms of reflecting more about a worldview, I've just come to realize I am still working it out. As I talked about it as a, as a, as yeah. a, point, as a, as a point of thinking about process, even this worldview is a process. But I do want to just double down and say what I think we said pretty clearly by the end of that episode, which is we are operating with one, um, consciously or unconsciously. And while I may be working mine out, I'm still standing from a particular ground, looking at the world from this particular point of view. And I might call it a process, but it seems pretty static and standard and, and um, systemized in some way. Uh, either A, from a consensus reality, like I pay my taxes, I, um, a man should be a provider for his family. Um, when I go to the mailbox, the mail will be there because the male man or woman is doing their job. I mean, there's a lot of things that we're going to, this is a nice way to transition into the next topic, which is the map is not the territory, but there's a lot of things here that we're taking for granted that a worldview is um, that a worldview that we have is percolating or holding some kind of grounding underneath us that we need to be aware of. Um, and uh, to transition this to this concept of the map is not the territory, um, this statement, if you've never heard it before, is a statement that was made, I think, 1931 by um, a Polish-American semiotician or, or language studies individual. He's a social scientist. Um, and his name was Alfred Korb. Korbowski, Korbowski, or Korbowski. Um, and he's studying language and the importance of language and how much language or semiotics, which is uh, framing language from the point of view that there are every language, every word, everything as a symbol, and that those symbols are really important to how we operate with our languaging. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. You don't have to have a full recognition of what we're meaning by that. But I'm just... He, he basically had a, he went to, he had a talk in New Orleans where he basically said this statement that the map is not the territory. And this, when I heard this for the first time, it just hit me right in the chest because I realized that my desires to have a systematic map of the world so I could figure out how to operate on a day-to-day -day basis was in itself a mediator it was it was i thought that the system was how i was going to be able to tell what was going on in my day-to-day -day life but in reality i was using a map to 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 interface there so this concept basically says that maps are existing to help us conceptualize any territory that they represent so if you've got an actual map you're looking at it we don't want to take that map and say that map which shows the Rocky Mountains in this particular area as being the actual Rocky Mountains. If you get to that particular neck of the woods and you're standing in the mount, the the in the middle of the Rocky Mountains or on a press on the peak of a of a of a peak, which Jason and I love to do, we're 
love to get to on the top of 14,000 foot mountains. You can look at that map and then you can look out over the territory that you both climbed or what's out there many, 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 many miles away. And you can realize pretty quickly that the map isn't the territory. The map is useful, helpful, um, but it's still just a representation and a symbol of that actual place on the earth. And so what we want to do is just kind of unpack more and more this idea of the way that maps um, are constantly being used by us in a wide variety of ways. And we're going to go through a few of those, but also how maps become problematic because they begin to start to um, be the territory for us and will have a tendency to really be challenged. And I think that Korborski came up with this idea because it was the most ac most obvious way for us to say this sort of underlying conceptual premise or representation problem that we have with the world and maps and territory are a really clear way to delineate them. Whereas we might say something like language, like, okay, I'm going to say the word tree and there's Gonna, it's going to hold a space for this actual tree that's outside my house. But when I use the word tree, am I talking about that tree, every tree, any tree? Is a shrub a tree? At what point does a shrub go from being a shrub to a tree? At what point does an elm be different from an oak? And when we use the word tree, we're just not capable of really we're not that word does not delineate all of those different attributes that could be potentially part of a tree and that becomes problematic if we're not careful because what happens is what's really real can get clouded over by the concept just like that map of being on top of mount yale will really really cloud the ability to actually stand there and look out four different directions or as many different directions as you can and get the pure awe and experience of being on top of a 14,000 foot mountain. Um, how do, how do you think about this, Jason? Like when you think of, when I brought this to you, this was definitely my topic that I was very interested in, but you sort of went, Ooh, Ooh, I like that. That's covering some ground I'd like to talk about. So give me a little background on sort of how this concept resonates with you or where you've been thinking with it. And then we'll move from there into some classic maps that I think that are existing and then break it down into running stuff. And then we'll go really weirdly out into the weeds with more esoteric ways of discussing this concept. It's every, everything and nothing. So we'll end <laughs> up, right. Probably. Um, so one of the, I think the biggest thing that came to mind for me <clears throat> is um, I made the statement last week, there are no questions there, or there are no answers, there are only questions. So the, uh, you know, you say map, I think of a, to a, topo, a topo map, right? Yeah. Um, like you're just talking about a map of the Rocky Mountains or something like that. But really, it's any sort of conceptual model. Um, language right the classification of flora and fauna in into these systems right that's that's a map when um you know i got <clears throat> when i was in college and uh or, you know before my worldview was shattered by <laughs> this one particular professor saying there are no answers there are only questions i thought i was assigned this paper, I'm going to read this paper, the author 
postulates this theory about how the world works, that must be the truth, right? But then I started to get confused because, well, there are a whole bunch of competing theories about how the world works in a particular context, right? Whether it's international relations theory or social theory or you name it, physics, chemistry, whatever. We, there are very few laws or, or truths, so to speak, in the world. And they're really all these, these model theory map, however you want to say it. We're taking reality, which we often struggle to comprehend, and we're abstracting away from it into a model that's comprehensible for us. And it's so easy to get lost in, in thinking that you have an explanation of the world or for the the phenomena that you see in the world every day. And um, I, I think you're right. The, there's a problem there in that we get lost in, in our thoughts and our mind rather than just being present in the pure experience of whatever is happening. And I think that will get, especially in the running context, into a lot of the pitfalls of, of this problem statement um, is it shows up in, in many different ways. And so, you know, I think that um, th- there was a, one of the things you shared with me, they had a quote from George Box, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I think it's just important to remember that um, the way that we think, the way that we conceptualize information, the way that we abstract from reality is important to see, just like our worldview, it's important to see how these things are happening, to understand the limitations of maps, um, so that we know where we might be getting ourselves into problematic thinking or problem solving. Um, This could show up as like, uh, I just misunderstand how the political system is supposed to work or how different parties are represented or that there are even different political systems within the context of democracy all mm-hmm. over the world. Um, or even um, negative self-talk can come up simply as a reflection of a, of a problematic model or understanding of something that's happening in my life or in the current moment. And um, so I think it's you know always important to, to see these and, and deal with them. And and another analogy, so I studied geography as an undergraduate, and I loved taking courses on maps, map use, map interpretation, that sort of thing. And even if you just look at the world of maps, you start to see that every map has limitations, right? Like I'm trying to create a two-dimensional image of a three-dimensional object. What are the compromises I have to make in abstracting that model in order to create something that's somewhat intelligible. <laughs> and it's not always evident when you look at, let's say, a Mercator map that it made X, Y, and Z compromises in order to render a 2D representation of something that you can look at. And you might think, wow, Canada is fucking huge in relationship to Peru or something like that, right? And, um, and so I, I think what I just think it was a, it's a really good conversation and maps being ubiquitous and territory being tangibly understandable makes for a good contrast to talk about mental models. 
Yeah. I think that quote about um about that George Box quote about model about models, right? Is something that I think a lot of people really will um I don't know that they will actually when we say that, okay, they, I don't know that they actually most people will think no models are real. <laughs> first of all, most people are going to say that the model is good. And this quote that says models are a problem, but they're necessary because they're useful, right? Is something that you're that is a, is a very succinct way of saying what you just said. But let us flesh it out a little bit about what we mean by this, well, about what we mean by potential classic sort of maps that we might be thinking about. So you mentioned the idea of language, and this is such a huge one, especially anybody that's done any study of the way that language impacts us. I spent a lot, I spent a lot of time thinking about magic <laughs> and magic is purely and simply this idea that we can manipulate reality based on our will S super loose way i love that's a that's not the way i feel magic is but that's the way most people think about magic right but as soon as you realize that you start to realize how impactful words are and you know you mentioned self-talk self-talk is sort of a small a little small encapsulation of this issue but if you expand it further out to say every single word i say is mediated by a concept that's not a real thing, it's just an idea that's floating around, referencing towards a real thing that's in the universe, a tree, right? A tree is a tree, but what kind of tree? That requires immense amounts of contextualization. And that con context is this part of the map and territory problem that we're really pointing at here. And I think language does a great job of it by saying, hey, the word tree is not the tree. What is important is that Jason and I, when I say tree, Jason's doing all this mapping in his brain to get to a tree. So when I say tree, I've got this 350 year old live oak that's in my front yard that I might be thinking about. And Jason's looking out his backyard at a pecan tree that's growing up that's different and looks different and has a different experience and he has a different relationship to it. He has a different way of dealing with it, all those things. It's just a word. But yet, if we don't have these words, then we're, what are we doing? And I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to point at to say, yes, we language is useful, as George says. It's useful, but we have to be careful. So that's that's a that's a big one. And I'm just going to leave it there because I think that in a lot of ways, that's a whole we could eventually do a whole episode on language. Um, but it, I'm not sure exactly how practical it would be for our running groups, for, for people that listening to us from a running perspective. But here's another one I like to use the idea of art. OK, so when we look at a painting. You had originally a blank canvas. And then a human being typically anywhere from one-year-old, the first time a first child could put a hand on paint and stick paint against the canvas, all the way to Van Gogh or Monet or Picasso or whoever you want to delineate as the greatest artist, visual artist or painter of, of in history. Everybody's got a different view on that. And all they're doing is taking pigment, ground earth, 
that has been manipulated in some way, put into a liquid form, either water or oil or some other chemical composition, creates a, then you place these colors on a palette or a place to use them. And then you take those and you use them to manipulate with a brush or some other thing onto a blank canvas. And then it's done over and over and over again in such a way. And then 50 years later, you go to a, if they're a really good artist, 50 years later, you go to a art museum and you look at it and you see Van Gogh's sunflowers. And anybody who's seen that painting knows that there's a representation there of something that he actually probably looked at. But it is not just sunflower. It's not sunflowers at all. It's a representation of sunflowers. And we respond and react to it because it brings something out of us. So I just want to show the art form is a map of a territory. The map itself is beautiful. It's amazing. We value it. It's incredibly it's an, it's an incredible thing. And what I think, in my opinion, I'm not an art critic, but what I think is happening in that scenario is Vincent van Gogh in the late 1880s was trying to get me to be in the territory with his map, which is super cool to me when I think about that. It's like, I mean, literally mind blown, like, Right. And then you look at the surrealists and what are they doing? Like they've got weird surrealist paintings. You've seen, you know, I think of Dali's like watch that's melting off the edge of a in a weird landscape with all these weird things. And you've got others that are even more abstracted into strange and unusual things. You've got Rothko, who does basically color blocks that are these weird color blocks. But each one of those things is trying to take as a map, get to some territory, whether externally or internally. So that's another one. Here's one beliefs. This is a really important map because we are using a mental habitual pattern to represent something that we think is true. The belief is not a thing. It's not the actual truth. Instead, it's an emotionally held thought that we're using to represent a concept. So when we go back to the view, the view is not the territory. The view is the way that we're utilizing, we're representing the territory for us. Because somebody who has a worldview who's a Christian will have a worldview that's different from someone who's an animist or to someone who's living in a, in a, in a more atheistic kind of perspective. So that's important. Here's another one. Time. This is huge, okay? Like time is a specific system of measurement used to represent a perceived experience of the past or a present or a future. Um, we've discreetly divided into seconds, minutes, hours, and a clock or a sundial or an hourglass are ways of mapping this inner territory of what we're having of this experience. But as I mentioned last time, have you ever been in the past? Have you ever been in the future? When we're using time as a second or a minute, is that the same for my dog? Is it the same for a amoeba? Is it the same if, let's just go out the way out there, is it the same for an alien life form that's living on a different planet? I mean, time is a map that we're using to try to figure out our way through the territory. So I say, I used those classic maps to say, hey, these things are baked into the fabric of what we call reality. And I'm not asking people to go through and ask questions about time or systems or their beliefs or necessarily language or art. 
but I want you to recognize that we're doing this all the time. Okay. And it's good. It's a good thing, but 60 seconds clicking off of a watch is not being really alive in the world. It's not what it is. Some people have a really good understanding of time. Someone can guesstimate that they've been gone. If you could sit somebody for 10 minutes in a room and they could say, no, this is, this is basically consisted of 600 seconds. I know. And they don't count it, right? They can just feel it. But I would say is they're just, they're just, what's really real there is they're just getting a basic, they're able to utilize this map to help them find out where they're at their territory, where you and I could sit in a room for 10 minutes and I'd probably guess it was 360 seconds and you might think it was 3,050 seconds, right? Like who knows? Different people have different experiences of that. So maybe I've muddied the waters here, but I, I kind of wanted to muddy the waters because I kind of want people to see there's a lot going on here in this concept and there's classic, classic ways that we use the map and, and, for a territory. And as we draw into future in, the, in a minute, when we bring these into running equivalents, I think it'll be more, not maybe not more clear, but you'll see why I've shown these as, as classic examples. Yeah. And I, I want to give one more example where there is a type of map that can get, becomes ubiquitous and, and applied in a lot of contexts and that's statistics. And I talked a little bit about statistics last time, um, but what what we've seen in social science research in particular over the last several decades is the explosion of the use of statistics to explain the world that we live in. And um, you, we, you won't even notice sometimes that somebody is putting forward an argument that is drawn from statistics. It could be something as simple as, 47% of voters said they have a low opinion of President Joe Biden or some shit like that, right? But you, you have to start to think about um, all of the layers of abstraction that came from that, right? And the whole model, how it works, right? I took a statistically significant sample of a general population, and then I crunched that through an algorithm, and then I extrapolated some general observations about the world. And if you really broke down the process by which we use a statistical model to create a map of the territory, you might get a little bit uneasy about how we start to explain our understanding of the world. And so I think that it's important not even just to know that um, there are these ma these maps or models that we're using to represent territory, but also to know how they were put together, how they were constructed, so that you can see all of those compromises. Um, and, and, you know, for me, once I spent enough time, especially uh, s studying social science through the government department at UT and seeing the ubiquitous use of statistics to explain the world, I became really uncomfortable that the idea that I can learn anything tangible about the world f from a statistical model. And I, and I have to really <clears throat> think about and unpack everything that I come and encounter with that is pushed as an observable fact or, or um, even like likely truth about the world. I want to know how, I, I want to see the math. 
as your teacher might tell you in grade school, right? That's fine. You got the answer, right? <laughs> Show me the work. I want to see the work. I want to know how we got somewhere. And I may have, you know, for, for me, the pendulum might have swung from a place where I took everything I was told about the world on face value until that got me into a lot of trouble. And now I'm overly skeptical about everything that I encounter in the world. Um, but I really think that it's, it's valuable exercise to just pause and think about what you're encountering. And, and we don't, yeah, you know, like I love your examples of something like time because we just take that kind of thing for granted. Like time is how we keep track of time. Right. Then I, you know, I love to ask those meta questions like what is time? <laughs> is it universal? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, what's super, you know, I've, as you were reflecting on statistics and talking about how we're using statistical modeling to tell us what the territory is, but it is a map, and then the, everyone gets confused by the statistics being that. Another area that I, this is getting, talking about meta, I spent a lot of time thinking about consciousness. And consciousness is one of these topics that if you decide to go down that road, um, you're going to realize very quickly that we that we don't really that everyone will at least admit that they don't know when you get them down to brass tacks no matter who they are no matter how sophisticated they are with their frameworks scientifically or religiously um or spirit whatever model you want to use because different people have different ways of looking at this right they all will basically state at the end Maybe not all of them, but anyone worth their salt, okay? Making a big statement there. Talk about hy hy being hyperbolic, right? <laughs> but anyone worth their salt will say, we, at the fundamental level, we don't know. And if they don't say that, I know I don't really want to keep talking to them because they're basically saying they do know, okay? But let's go going through this idea of consciousness. There are models out there for consciousness that will blow people's fucking minds, I mean, most of us have heard at this point in time about um, Elon Musk's concept that it's not his concept, but he's making it extremely popular these days, or at least well known that um, we live in a simulation, that basically this is just a computerized, what we've got going on right now is just a computerized model, right? It's just a big computer in the sky or something like that. I don't really understand it exactly, but I do know that there, if you go down that line and do the statistical analysis, do all the work and go down there, if that's the point of view you're coming from, you can find a consciousness, you can find a model for that that explains the world. There's another guy I love to listen to. His name is Donald Hoffman. I do not understand all of his modeling, but he's a mathematician. And he comes at this from a mathematical model that basically says that when you see, let's say, a stop sign, that stop sign is not really there. There's a thing there in reality. But the fact that it happens to be octagonal, or is it hexagonal? It's hexagonal, right? Octagonal. It's, got, it's octagonal. It's got eight sides. Correct. It's got red <laughs> on it with a white trim and white letters across it. They say stop. And in his model, none of those things are actually real. We've just continued to agree upon red being this and S being this and T being this and O being this. And then we place it up on a thing that we're at the point that our entire 
frame of what reality is, is mistaking map for territory. When you get to that point, it's like, well, what the fuck can I even do, right? So, because that really, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, I have always had this underlying feeling that reality is not what it seems. But I, but I couldn't find any framework. So then for a while, I hung my hat on this particular theory. And then I listened to a number of others and each one of them, I'm like, no, this is it. And I think at the end of the day, we just say, we're all maps. These are all maps. That's our main point here, right? These are all maps. Use what works for you, but don't mistake that map for the territory. When you meet someone else who's walking down this particular neck of the woods with a different map that you're you guys are walking in the same territory with different maps, be very aware that their map is a, is a valuable, necessary, important, and um, likely, likely, uh, deeply held map for them. And yours is different. It doesn't necessarily, does that make their map wrong? Well, I think you and I would say, no, it doesn't. But yet in our political reality that we're walking in today, today, especially when we think about what was going on with the coronavirus and who's getting, who's getting, uh, whether you should get a shot or not get a shot, whose story, whose science, who's real, what's real, what's not real. Um, you know, lots of people holding different maps, talking about a territory. And if we recognize that, I think it makes it so much more, it makes it easier for us to be empathic, to have empathy for other people. It allows us to stand in the, for a step or two or three or four in their shoes. It allows us to say, hey, we're all, all of this is a little bit um, crazy. And it's not necessarily made up, but it's, we don't know. We still don't know. It's, and that is destabilizing, challenging, and problematic. But before we go down that whole rabbit hole, okay, let's talk about a couple of running equivalents for people to get this sort of like, again, me, because I'm, it, sound, it could sound to people that I'm arguing that maps are not beneficial, okay? I hope that people are getting this point that the map is valuable and useful and advantageous to us as human beings, to even, to be, to what we might call human flourishing, right? Um, but it's crucial to understand how we can take these maps for reality and how we can make them concrete, how we hold them as thinking that they are concrete and physical. I'm going to give you one example. This is because I'm a running coach. And so I spend a lot of time creating training plans. I call them macro cycles. And these are short term by short, I mean, nine month, six month windows of planned training that I write down in a spreadsheet. And I make them all fancy and try to get all these different physiological modelings and ideas into them to help at the end of the day to give a plan of attack for us to think about doing training, how we'll actually go out and do individual workouts. So you take a big plan and then you break it down into uh, smaller cycles. We call mesocycles, which are like maybe three weeks long. And then we break those down into individual runs and individual workouts. And each of these are some kind of plan to help people get ready for a race. But what I find frequently, a lot of times, is that my athletes are confusing my training plan for actual fitness. So they'll look at it and say, look, I did all these things. So these things mean that I'm, it indicates I'm ready to do this thing. Now that is useful and I use it. Don't get me wrong. I do use it to tell people, look, go back. I asked people in their pre-race 
before their races to go through their training log and look at it and indicate key workouts that told them that they were ready to do all these things. If someone wants to run six minutes and 50 seconds per mile for 26.2 miles, and we did workouts on courses that simulate what they would be doing on race day, blah, blah. We try to do all these things, right? But the training plan is just a map of it. And when they look later at the Strava data or their workouts and they write up this race plan, that also is a map. The territory happened when they were doing the workout. The territory happens when they get on the starting line and they run the race. The map is just there to help us think through what all that is. And when we confuse the map and the territory, we begin to start to think that it's not an un race, that a race is not an unfolding process. That because I did 16 miles at 650 per mile pace in this constituation, constituated in these ways three months before, two months before a workout, that I'm going to be ready to run it. No, it just says that you've done work to hopefully prepare you for meeting that particular day in that moment, right? And somebody might say, why are you saying this? I know that. Do you? Because in my experience, it's not always that way for people. Um, they think, I've had many people say, oh, I like looking at your macro cycle. It makes me feel like I'm going to be ready to run that race. Okay, but it, it's, it's literally in, I don't even, unless I print out that macro cycle, it's not even in physical reality. <laughs> it's it's yep. it's pixels constellating on a screen representing these ideas that i had that are really really complex and interesting but even the complexity that it's on the screen now when i print it there's a piece of paper that also has this representation but it's not actual the fitness another way we can think about this too is like here's a good one especially for ultra runners like course maps and elevations are not the actual course <laughs> Like right. I just had athletes run Boston and I have been gaming Boston for years and years and years. And again, I feel like I gamed it. The athletes' performances were not exactly what I thought we were going to get out of the race. And I think I know it. And then I'm watching the race play out on the screen because I'm watching it on TV. Right. And I'm looking at it and going, God, it looks so hilly from the angle that they're holding the, the, the camera at as the athlete athletes are running through the course. And I'm like, gosh, I didn't see it that way on the elevation map. And I've run portions of that race. I've never run Boston all the way through, but I've run many, many portions of it. But I can't remember accurately all of it. When I see it in real time, I'm like, gosh, it's hillier and harder and more challenging than I even thought. And it, what, I, what I did there was I confused my map, this map, for the territory. And I, I just need to be careful each time when I make a suggestion to athletes before the races on how to do this appropriately and how to just effectively say, yeah, remember, these are models. We're using the model to actually get through reality, be in reality. And I think that I need to do that more, right? I need to do it as much as possible because I need to make my athletes aware of that. But anybody listening to this, you need to look at those kinds of things that you utilize. What are a couple others, Jason? What ones popped to mind that you think of as running equivalents of mistaking the map for the territory? Ooh, um, I guess so <clears throat> here, 
here are my thoughts that uh, I wrote down. So the maps are a, they're a snapshot in time. So like they represent something that, that no longer exists, right? Even like from the time they're made, it could be a map of the physical world. It's already changing. The Himalayas are getting taller. Um, Hawaii volcanoes are getting bigger as they spew more lava out. Um, the ocean, maybe the sea levels are rising. Um, and so you really have to think um, as you navigate a piece of terrain, whether the map you're using to navigate it will be useful the next time you navigate that piece of terrain or a similar piece of terrain. So a training plan, um, you know, you, you like you run through that training plan one time. Hopefully you build fitness and experience off of that. Um, and then you have to consider whether or not that's useful the next time. So an example could be, um, I, yeah, you know, so like every race is different. I, I ran in 2018, the Bandera 100 K and I created a map, a training plan to tackle that. It included things like volume, terrain specificity, different parameters around how much climbing and technical running I should do. Uh, this particular time of year dictated nutrition and hydration strategies. And so I have to ask myself when I'm next training for, let's say, a 100-mile challenge in the Pacific Northwest, whether anything that I did to prepare for a 100K race in Central Texas is useful the next time I'm navigating a similar piece of terrain, right? Running a very long distance over trail. Um, and, and so really thinking about whether or not the maps are, are useful again and again and again is important. And you can abstract that away even further and just say, does what I'm about to do require me to have a training plan? Do I need a marathon training plan? Do I need what kind of training plan do I need? Um, and that gets into to the interpretation piece that we've t been talking about, right? Seeing um, not just in in this case, what are the limitations of a map or how is it constructed um, in order to achieve the abstraction, but whether or not the same type of map is even political applicable in, in what we're getting into. Um, another thing that I thought about is that it is you know, getting more into this idea that maps require interpretation is that if you think about a training plan as an athlete agreeing or committing to a training plan that let's say my coach wrote me, I have not absolved myself or, or abdicated all agency that I have in this, in this deal and the use of this map to navigate the territory, right? Um, I still have agency. I still have to make decisions. I have this map to look at. I have this map to reference. It is useful. It shows me things that I need, whether it's uh, waypoints like key workouts, 
or trail markers. Um, and I have to figure out whether or not I am still on course to do whatever it is that uh, I'm trying to. Am I still on course to navigate to whatever that waypoint is that I need to get to next? And um, what decisions can I make about the information I'm seeing in real time, right? Like what I'm seeing today might not be consistent with what's on the map. You know, like maybe maybe there's a new trail here or a logging road that wasn't there before, or maybe I woke up today and I'm in no condition for a four mile true tempo run and I need to make decisions on the fly. And so it just, especially thinking about this idea of the training plan as a map, it made me really think about how we as individual athletes have agency to make decisions and we need to see the map more as an abstraction of reality and stay stay more rooted in that reality and make sure that we're making decisions and not turning ourselves over entirely to the map or in this case the training plan and saying the training plan is the master of my fate i'm going to follow this rigidly and religiously i'm going to do everything on it and that's going to get the exact outcome specified <laughs> it's um not going to work out that way right like a statistical model is making general assumptions about the world and giving you an idea of something that could or could not happen within some sort of parameter of probability. And it's the same with a, with a training plan. Um, we, the, the idea is that this is all the work that you could do within a specified period of time. And if you do it, you're going to, you know, in the most general terms, build fitness, but specifically what that looks like and when that comes, it's not linear, right? It comes in fits and starts. And so as we abstract away from reality, we start to lose a lot of the nuance that's important to thinking about um, how we use that map or that abstraction of reality to make real decisions in real time that are actually part of reality. Yeah, that's really cool. <clears throat> that's really, I you said it more elegantly and effectively than I did, right? But the the thing that seems to me to be really important here, um, that's sort of lying underneath all of this, is something we haven't mentioned yet, which is that one of the reasons why maps and ter- the map territory problem exists in the first place is because as human beings we are so wired to predict that we seem to be spending so much of our time. We spend so much of our time consciously and unconsciously predicting what's going to be happening next because that's how we are framed to believe that we effectively get things accomplished or done. And that prediction necessity is the ultimate map that where all of these maps are here it's the meta meta map i think of and maybe there's another one there but this is the one that i think for me that i find is frequently um, most um helpful to start to look at because so often what i'm trying to do is predict some future situation and the stressors that come to me 
are not usually really real in the real time, but they're more worry related, or will I meet that objective? Or will I get to that particular place at that particular time? And will that play out in sort of the long-term planning? We can think about this from a budgeting standpoint. We can think about it from a race planning standpoint, career building standpoint, in so many different ways. It all comes down to this. Human beings are prediction-making machines prediction making machines. We are not machines, but you know what I mean. We machinate, we, we create systems and structures and map, we create maps in order for us to make more, more accurate predictions. And so just know that all of that is baked into it. The reason I can talk about this is because I spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of Wu Wei. Do you know what this is? This Chinese, it's basically, a, it's, a, it's a Taoist concept. Um, you know, from ancient China, that and Taoism is pretty much a lot of what influences Zen. Uh, a lot of what influences it's it's another Buddhism came through North India, through India, through the Himalayas, up into China, and then it went from China out into Korea to Japan and to other places. But the basic concept of Wu Wei is that um, is no way is doing no thing. It's not doing anything. And that the most natural way to be is to not plan, to not predict, and to be in flow with whatever is naturally normal in the world. And, you know, some of the best ways to see this are in little children. But even better is I've got two dogs. You probably heard them already on this podcast because they were just barking as they ran out of the room. Um, they are not... They are purely and simply Wu Wei. They are always reacting in real time, not planning, not doing, just doing what needs to be done in the moment. It's not doing until the time comes to do, right? But their whole plan, their whole way of dealing with the world is not doing until the time comes to do. This is anathema to human beings. Anathema. And we seem to think the thing that makes us so special about being human beings is our capacity to create, to use the rational element we have. And yeah, the rational element is very valuable. And we've seen that benefit us over the last 200, I mean, last 500 years, especially with the scientific modeling and all of the new gadgets and the wonderful things that we have. But I wonder, does my cell phone make me better? Is it, or are some of these older ways? a lot about that ways, particular question lately. Yeah. Yeah, but are these older ways like also baked into us that we're losing and losing and losing? So when I first came across this concept of Wu Wei, I was like, I just can't deal with this. I'm an athlete or I'm a coach chasing results, predictions. I've got to make, I've got to create models for predicting so my athletes can get on starting lines to predict so that they're in a better, but wait a second, a real beautiful race is what? Adapting in the moment without any plan of attack, to generally deal with each situation as best. And the mediating principles of our watches, our geekometers, right? The workouts that we've done, all these things are creating barriers or creating mediators between putting one foot in front of the other, hitting the ground through these particular play. I mean, Boston's been run 126 years. It was 126 running of the Boston Marathon. Hundreds of times people have run that particular route and it's on the same route. It hasn't changed in all those years. It's the same basic route. 
So you've got all this historical context and each, all of that stuff is like, is we're going to forget all that stuff and just, oh, I got to really focus on getting under three hours for this particular race on this particular day. Like, no, but what happens when it's hot as hell? It's 75 degrees, right? Anyway, I, I just bring but, that but to- What you're saying here is so important because um, what part, you know, part of what you're teasing on is we, because we're predictive, we have this myopic focus on outcomes a lot of time. This is a general statement about people, but I, I see it all the time and so much in running, right? It's, it's the training plan. People want the training plan. They want to pay a bunch of money for the training plan. They get focused on that training plan. The training plan is the key to the future. It's the key to the outcome. The focus is on the outcome and you go into that race and all you can think about is that outcome and that constant thought of that outcome is is pushing and pulling and constraining our actions in the present moment, preventing us from from feeling and experiencing everything that's happening, good, bad, ugly. Uh, it leads us to make compromises in our training, to take shortcuts, and and it pulls us away from the focus on the process the focus on the journey. I've so many, I have the same, this, the same conversation so many times with athletes, like in the last three to four weeks leading up to an event, I see athletes, they want to do, they want to do so much more. It becomes crunch time, cram time. And, and it's, for me, it's the quintessential example of being lost in the outcome and completely blind to the present moment, the process and the journey, because you're three or four weeks out, the hay is in the barn. <laughs> you've, you've done all the meaningful work and, and, and that's not just running. It's how you ate. It's how you slept. It's how you managed ancillary stress in your life. It's, it's all the things, the small things that make up the bigger piece of it. And I think, I think that we can't overstate how much of a problem it is to get caught in that, that predictive outcome oriented mindset. It's you, obviously there are outcomes that we care about. We're, we're chasing goals, but I, but I, I think it's so important to really emphasize what you're saying here, which is to come back to, to the process, to come back to the, to the journey. Yeah, I I can't I I can't I agree with you to a degree to which it's hard to even give words to. <laughs> but but to Our go models just fail us. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that but I do want to have I do want to make sure that people f know that we have empathy for them in those things because we understand it's easier for someone like you or I who are in a coaching position who have got the whole plan and know why we baked the plan in to see it as, oh, this has all been designed to create this opportunity for you and get out of the way. And yet all of a sudden, early in the cycle, you weren't in the way. You were just complaining about all the work that you had to do. Most of my athletes don't complain. And probably yours don't either. But you know what I mean? They're, they're recognizing, oh, my gosh, I've got to go do this. I don't feel like it on this day. This for whatever reason. But at, at that point in time, they're not obsessing about what they need to do. <laughs> they're, they're doing what they need to do, hopefully. But what is it as we get closer and closer is the reality of what they're going to have to do. 
starts to make them say, let me make better prediction models so that I can be more ready for this thing. Let me do some. And I bake that into all my programming, knowing that this is the nature of human condition, right, to be predictive. Um, and yeah. I've recently started to tweak my modeling to some, you know, I do a few sort of big workouts. Um, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of coaching talk these days about not doing see God workouts or not doing too big a sessions and these things. And I, and I appreciate that. And I'm, I've, I used to do a lot more of that than I do now, but I still do it. And the reason why I do it is because I cannot overlook the fact that my athletes are prediction making machines. If, if I don't place in there a few scenarios in which they're going to see the kinds of things that they're going to see on race day, then what service am I doing for them? And someone might say from a physiological model, that's dangerous. Okay, what I say from a psychological model, and this is real time, 25 plus years, 30 years of coaching, like gone through these things myself, but mostly been watching people, is I don't want them to have those prediction questions. I like to say I want them to stand on the starting line and feel capable of what they need to do. And if you don't go through it a little bit, it's going to be challenging. So I had this interesting conversation. You'll find this. In, I, I was at the Bandera 100K. I had two athletes running it this this last year. I was supposed to run it, but I got hurt. Um, lesson in humility. And as I was watching my athlete, my two athletes, one athlete ended up dropping out. The other athlete was underperforming at a pre pretty considerable degree than what we had expected to see from them when they came through the 50K. And as that athlete came through the 50K and continued on, I was talking to your wife, Mallory, who was there um, helps, helping to support as well. We were talking about, I just, I'm, always, I'm always a coach. I'm always like, what did I do wrong? What do I do wrong? I'm taking full responsibility. What's wrong? What's wrong? What happened? What happened? What's wrong? What's wrong? And what I realized in that moment was I need to create a more challenging predictive workouts in order for them to know what they're going to deal with. Because one of the major issues here in these kinds of super long workouts has nothing to do with the physiology of what's going on. It has everything to do with the ability to deal with problems. So how much are all these predictive modeling that I'm doing with training and everything what I need to do is more 100 Ks. If you want to be good at 100 K, go out and run fucking 100 Ks <laughs> because there's no other thing that's going to prepare you more for doing what you're going to do. And somebody will say, no, you can't do that. Well, can't you? I mean, ultimately, can't you? I mean, I see the elite elite athletes that are at the world level doing these things that are doing multiple hundred milers in a summer, multiple, four or five in a year. What are they doing? Like, why, why is that true? Why, why does a Courtney DeWalter line up for Hard Rock 100K, 100 miler, one of the most challenging 100 milers there actually is, and then know that a month later she's going to be doing UTMB, the most challenging, well, one of the most challenging 100 milers that there are, well, more than 100 miler, right? So, like, ultimately, what's going on there? Like, what, 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 is, what is physiology happening here? What's going on physiologically? Do you think Courtney DeWalter's thinking about physiology? I don't fucking think so. I really yeah. don't think so. I think what she's doing there is saying, I need to be ready to run this race. And what does it take to run this race? Now, she's also looking for money and trying to make sponsors things and doing this for a living and other pieces of that. But right. what I say, what I mean to say by that is like, I got trapped in thinking that my predictive models were effective for my two athletes. And what I really realized at that, and I'm not saying the solution is to go out and run these 100 milers, but my solution is, is that to say, stop thinking your map is the fucking territory as a coach. Yeah. You're going to fall into this exact same trap that you're asking your athletes not to. And that's, that's 
that's a moment of humility and a moment of, but, but to me, I could think about it and say, Oh, it's affecting my, my identity and who I am. And I'm a coach. I'm not a good coach. Yeah. I learned something and they learned something and we're living our life out here in the real world trying to take our predictive models, but we're not a fucking afraid to get out in the middle of it. We're not going to not get on that starting line. If everything's not optimal, we're going to put our place, put ourselves in these positions. The problem actually is more likely when, when everything goes exactly to plan that we think it's going to mean the predictive thing. I mean, both these athletes had incredible training riding up to it. Maybe they needed a few more sucky ass workouts, some things that didn't go well in order for them to not be so for us all not to be so confident in our predictive models. But anyway, I saw you reacting to some of that. So what, yeah. what do you, what do you, what well, do you, Thoughts you have so, there. so the the first one is um, we we need to weed out the outliers all the time. Like you would do this in statistics, right? You have that bell curve shape and the the tails. Like uh, Courtney Dewalter's way out, you know, and with Jim <laughs> Walmsley and, and the fucking stratosphere of your of your model, right? Like we just can't even look at that, um, you know. And then another thing I thought as you were talking about, you know, the, the, the predictive elements of the model is, um, that we, um, we focus a lot on the running, but really a training plan is about a, a broader umbrella of preparation. So what do I mean by this? Jason Coop looked at these studies of, um, they, they were exit surveys for 100 mile runners over a, a few years that were conducted by a third party organization. And um, they, they were trying to suss out the top reasons why athletes failed out of these ultra endurance competitions. And it was things like, so GI distress, number one at the top of the list. And then there's things like blisters, just hitting a wall, like a complete bonk. Um, and you know, you go down the list and, and when you start to really look at these things, the GI distress, like that's a, that's a lack of preparation. That was a, that's a training fail right there. That's just a miss. Like you did not figure out an effective nutritional strategy. You didn't put it to the test. Um, blisters like foot care one like in the moment foot care is something that you should know that you should be able to troubleshoot your way through the problem but also if you've been running in those shoes putting the miles on them on the train that's similar and stuff you should you should one know that that was coming and have prevented it somehow with what you did or you just trained your way through it your body adapted you've overcome that problem and so when we really think about it, it there's there's a lot more that goes into the training plan than just the running that you're going out and doing and i'm and i'm always trying to like almost <clears throat> downplay the importance of the workouts that we're doing you've obviously you have to build the fitness to go run and do the thing but there's so much more that goes into it and my example you know with with, with ultra running that's it's a little bit different i think talking about bandera you know kind of makes me think about that it's different if you're in a half marathon or a marathon the, the preparation you're doing is different, but it's all part of that representational model, right? Like that, the map legend is just bigger for something that you, else that you're doing, right? Or it's smaller for something else that you're doing and the colors are different and the words are different and the symbols are different, but they all are kind of like representing this, this body of work that you need to do in order to prepare for this thing. You want to achieve this outcome. You want to finish that race. You want to do it within a time threshold. Here's everything that you need to go and do, right? If your outcome was just, I want to finish this thing, there's a whole bunch of different ways <laughs> we could get to that, right? Uh, including walking it. <clears throat> okay. 
I want to, I have something here for you, Steve. This is going to be a fun one. I think as we, as we think about maps and territories, I want to like throw a wrench in, into this a little bit and talk about the Buddhist concept of essence. Mm. Right. Are you okay. familiar with essence? Yeah. So um, I, I took, I first came into contact with this like in a really powerful way. Robert Wright wrote a book. I think he's a Yale philosophy professor, wrote a book called Why Buddhism is True. Definitely the book is called Why Buddhism is, Why Buddhism is True. It might not be Robert Wright and he might not be at Yale, but I think those are all accurate pieces of information. He's talking about uh, a, there's an estate sale for JFK, John F. Kennedy the assassinated American president who was super popular in the 60s, 70s, I think. And 1964, he passed away. Yeah. Okay. And so there's a tape measure for sale. JFK's tape measure. Let's say, you know, it's for sale for $5,000. It's a fucking tape measure. I look at, I, I do carpentry work part-time. I look at tape measures every time I go to Home Depot because every once in a while, you know, you can get a deal somewhere around a dollar a foot for a tape measure. It might even get a little better. Let's call it 20 bucks is the going price of a, of a decent tape measure. I mean, you've got one here that's for sale for $5,000 because once upon a time, a person used that tape measure and we've assigned this essence to it. And why does this matter? Well, we, we can um, lean more heavily on particular maps in our world because we assign essence to them, I think, right? So I could write somebody a training plan for the Bandera 100K. You could write somebody a training plan for the Bandera 100K. Joe Presadis could write somebody a training plan for the Bandera 100K, or Jeff Browning could write somebody that training plan. And um, we might get caught up in thinking, oh, well, Joe Perseus, he created the race. Like he was, this is his thing. He's got to have the best idea, right? Or you might think Jeff Browning, I mean, he's tied for Ann Trayson as one of the most winning 100-mile runners in the world totally this dude has got the, the plan that's locked right or you're like steve sisson is just a fucking genius he writes the best training plans i've ever seen I, i'm gonna go with his and you and and you, you we might gravitate toward these models because there's some sort of essence we assign to it and and we lean on that and at the end of the day <laughs> you you just you, you lose so much of, of what went into creating that map and we've ascribed a, a belief in, into something that is intangible and maybe not even real that, that somehow makes it more valuable for us. What do you, what do you think about? Yeah, that's a... Uh, is essence a pitfall? Am I making well, this I up? I think essence... No, no, no. I think that though the the challenge for that is the is that it's modeling, it's using a model. Let me see if I get this right. It's using a model that basically says that tape measures are only tape measures. 
and that no, because I'm assuming what you're saying is that essence isn't real, okay? Or that it's a, 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 its value is no way to be told, whereas a, a tape measure is a dollar a foot, so we got that. And this one is right. being sold for basically $500 a foot, right? Or something like that. I can't I did the math real quick. Sure. But, yeah, yeah, that's um, just making it up. And so what... Yeah, yeah. So what's that right there? Right? Is that real? Well, this is a this is, and I and I to your main point is each of us needs to val recognize where that essence map is sitting and decide whether or not that essence map essence map is valuable to us. Because you think it's ridiculous that a person could buy would buy something that has JFK's essence. I mean, I don't you can't even conceive of JFK even using a tape measure for anything but anyway maybe he did sometime in his life but maybe he didn't even touch it maybe somebody just grabbed that tape measure off the street from a 1964 one and said this is jfk's because you know we've got art forgeries all over the world saying and i'm right. like what doesn't difference does it make some people actually get somebody to forge an artwork that they can that they own to put it on their wall and then they take the real artwork and they put it in a sealed box that nobody can see and nobody can deal with right so that essence part is like, is that real really comes down to the mental model or framework that person has for their worldview or how they see things. The way I like to talk about this is something I think for a lot of people who are who are Western, they can get a little more clear to this is that do we have a soul? Because I've spent a lot of time with this particular question because I could, I have always believed in a soul because I grew up in a strict fundamentalist Christian background. So I just basically thought my mental model, my framework, my viewpoint was that you have, we have souls. And then I, lose my faith and I start wandering and I spend more time in a reduction, I, I think more of a, from a materialist, maybe an atheist point of view. And then I say, no, they don't exist. But as I'm getting older, I'm wondering, well, but how do I know they don't? Because I have a whole lot of other conceptual things that we do say exist, like time. I mean, time, we, we, we got ways to track it. We don't have as many ways to track souls, but there's a lot of people out there that do track it. And there are a lot of people out there tracking essence in some way, shape or form, varies, various essences. And so is it, is it is essence a true thing or not a true thing? I guess kind of take this full circle in a way maybe is to think of essence as another map. And the map is extremely meaningful. That's okay. But just recognize it's still going to be a tape measure, a 1964 tape measure that may not be able to do the thing that tape measures are there for. So now it's doing something completely different. And if you're okay with that, that's fine. But it would be really disappointing if somebody bought that 1964 JFK and thought it was going to be able to do some other things, like write an incredible speech or um, get them to be president of the United States or do some other thing that that essence, some sort of transferable thing that can then they can take and work with, that it's that it's practical in some way. It may not even be practical as a as a... I mean, I bet something made in 1964 that's a tape measure is probably really practical because it probably has right. stood this test of time. Yeah. Um, whereas, a, whereas some of ours are not. I think about laser things. I, I, I've done a little construction too, and I'm like, how is this laser telling me where to cut this thing? Like, I don't trust it. Give me get that tape measure out. I like the tape yeah, measure better. Draw a pencil line here, real quick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or you know, they're even yeah. using lasers to measure what how far away you are from one place to another. I'm like, I don't really. My brother's like, throw that shit in the trash. He does it construction all the time. He's like, throw that shit in the yeah. trash, pull out your tape measure and measure it three times and write it down yeah. twice, measure it three times, write it down twice <laughs> and, like and check it twice before you cut it. Cause yeah. it's going to be a problem. Right. But I think but you're I hitting guess the nail on the head though, that right? Is, um, is like, if you, if you think that 
you got it right there. If you think that tape measure is going to do something other than measure the distance between two points, you're mistaken, right? And, and I think that's my point. If you think that his training plan is better than her training plan because you've assigned some essence to her accomplishments or existence or perception in the world, you may be sadly mistaken. Um, and and, and you're, mm. you're misinterpreting the model or you're not even the model, but yeah. you're kind of, you're, you're misinterpreting kind of the nature of reality at that point. Yeah. They're, they're saying that the map is the territory and yeah. it's not, it doesn't, doesn't play out. Um, so I think this is a good place to wrap it up. One thing I want to, I want to lean into here because there's an entire topic that you and I thought we were going to get down that we didn't really get down which is how the map and the territory sort of functions in our concepts, concepts of identity and how that might play out from an idea that you and I are both really thinking a lot about these days is sort of what awakening is, what is, what is, what is enlightenment, what is awakening, what is it to be a fully human human being? And identity is a big piece of this. And map territory is a really nice way to kind of work with and start to deconstruct a little bit these maps to be sure that they're jiving with the territory we find ourselves in on a day-to-day -day basis. And so maybe we can save this. And you and I have been talking about doing identity as a potential topic down the line. So maybe this is a nice segue to say we've got the natural stopping place for this episode. And next time we're going to talk about identity um, and ways that we the ways that identity are a map and maybe the ways that identity are a territory because it's a really interesting way to unpack and think about it. And I'm certain we can cover um, significant amounts of time on that and bring in a lot of different threads that might be interesting and useful for people. So any last, any, any last minute, any last minute topics or anything you want to talk about to close this out? Or do you think that's a good idea to transition a good way to transition yeah. it? I think, yeah, that, you've got us lined up right there. We'll just, seamlessly into our next non-intro we'll <laughs> awesome. thanks jason i really appreciate it i'm having so much fun with these i hope folks are enjoying them um if you have any questions or want to reach out to us or have comments or anything about it whatsoever um just reach out to me at sisson at run gnosis i'll make sure all that gets to jason and we would love to hear your comments or thoughts thanks Steve. and uh with that we'll send you off and you bet. We'll send you guys off and we'll talk to you next time, whenever that may be.